uh, we have been in a series, and the title of this series is called Relationship or Religion, and I like the subtitle of this series. It's called Confronting the Chains of Legalism, and um, we've been playing with this idea of summarizing the Christian faith in two to four words, you know. I think that's, that's, that's good for us to think about because sometimes faith and church and all these different things get really complicated. But one of the best definitions I ever heard in terms of how you could summarize the Christian faith was that Jesus wants relationship, not religion. So as we've been talking about in this series about legalism, we've been looking at this definition that I just always want to refresh us each and every week. What are we talking about when we're talking about legalism? We're talking about, as Merriam-Webster would define it, strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code, right? We're looking in this series of how we get our ideas and our conclusions about God. And there's so many different people that interpret this thing that we call the Bible, the manual, right, on how we would understand God and how he reveals himself, that in this series we've been confronting how do, we go, how do we interpret the Bible in a way that's going to be helpful? When we approach the Bible, how are we approaching it? So we've been wrestling with all these different ideas. And here's what I know, that people use the same Bible that you and I maybe refer to or have engaged with to justify all sorts of different things and behaviors, right? Some helpful, others unhelpful. So last week, if you missed last week, we're trying to just see a really clear picture of God through the series and how when we open our Bible, when we approach the Bible, we're interpreting the most clear picture we can grasp about who God is, a God who desires relationship with humanity, right? And last week, we, we talked about rigid approaches. We talked about the chain of rigidity, that sometimes Christian culture and we looked a little bit through the anthropology, we anthropologically studied a little bit and talked about how subcultures, even within Christianity, influence the way we interpret the Bible before we even open the Bible. That sometimes Christian culture influences us to be very black and white people. And we talked about the difference between disagreement and disrespect. And as a church, we're committed to be people that even if there's disagreement, that does not mean that you disrespect people. That does not mean you point fingers and call somebody the Antichrist. That does not mean, that, right? That means you don't, you play nice. You understand that people have ideas, and we played with this big idea that we approach the Bible in a way that is helpful. So just to summarize last week, um, we talked about, at the end, we talked about an average Joe biblical approach. And here's our commitment is that we're going to be people that commit to make interpretive conclusions that are ongoing and informed because God is a relational God. Ongoing because Christianity is about relationship with God. It is always growing and deepening. A husband should never reach a point where he says, this is what I understand about my wife, and that's all I need to know. So please don't challenge any perceptions that I have, right? We know that relationships are ongoing, so is our relationship with God and how we open our Bibles and we interpret and we understand, but we also have to be people that are informed. We, in 2018, we have a benefit of being people that are actually are the disposal of what we have in terms of academics and education is amazing compared to generations past. The typical eighth grade student nowadays knows much more about geography, politics, economics, and science than John Calvin, one of the great reformers in church history, did at his smartest moment. Do we know that? We understand that? We are so, we have the benefit of being so informed in 2018. At this time in history, we have a significantly greater access to knowledge than any other generation prior. What a time to be alive! 
right? We have so much at our disposal and how we can understand and benefit the world in terms of God's word and how he sees and thinks about the world that we live in. It is an exciting time to be alive. And we know that blinding accepting what others say without examining against the Bible, if you become a person that you don't make your faith your own, so easily you can begin to be a cult follower. Let's just say it like that, right? We have to interpret the Bible personally. We have to filter it through our own personal faith and own personal study. There has to be a moment with faith where we say, I'm going to own my own faith. This isn't my family's faith. This isn't my brother's faith. This isn't my friend's faith. This is my faith. So what do I think about God and how have I interpreted God through his word and understanding how I relate to God today in 2018? And I really encourage us and I want to encourage us once again. Our goal last week was to understand that we can't do life alone. And digesting the Bible and doing this thing called life and how it corresponds with our faith. We need other people. And we do this thing called small groups at our church, which are small communities where it's not just Sunday to Sunday, but we have church throughout the week. And church by meaning we get people together that surround themselves upon different ideas, different, different uh, things to do for fun, different things and ways that we can help out the community. So I just encourage you today, if you haven't signed up for a small group, those started last week for the trimester. Head to our website, PonkaCityChurch.com slash uh, small dash groups and you can uh, get plugged into a group and contact a group leader we got tons of groups happening throughout on a monthly scale uh, with all sorts of different things but we can't do this thing called life alone so without further ado uh, part three of this morning's or the series uh, we're going to be talking about the title is this common filters we're going to be addressing filters in the way that we filter naturally when we open the bible when we open the Bible, there's naturally some assumptions that we make that can sometimes hinder our perspective and our view of God. So this morning, we're going to confront a few of those. But before we continue, um, I want to say this, is that in this series, um, we're, we're going to do this thing called Conversation Sunday. And I've been asking you guys to go to our website under our event page. And in that, on that page, you can ask or you can grab your bulletin that uh, hopefully you get grabbed on your way in. And you can fill out on the notes section and, and literally ask any question you want. In this series, we're going to be talking about a lot. Of, it's going to be like information overload. So here's what I'm asking is that we, we transition church from just being a monologue to a conversation. And in the several weeks and the weeks uh, leading into the conclusion of this series, we're going to be gathering questions from you guys. And we're going to do a service on Sunday called Conversation Sunday where we're going to just literally answer questions that you have. Any questions, anything that's confusing, right? We're just going to really try to address the things that maybe it's like, hey, let's go a little bit deeper uh, on this and let's talk about it. So I would encourage you throughout this series, I've gotten, uh, I mentioned last week I only had like one question in my email inbox. I've gotten like dozens since, so it's awesome. And these are great questions and I can't wait for this series to answer some of these questions as we progress through it or for us to, to address some of these lingering questions that people have about God, about this life about humanity. This is a big deal. We only get one life to live, you guys. And, and, and the, the, the part that faith plays is such an integral part. I believe that um, in terms of what Jesus has done for us and how we relate to the God of the universe. Amen? Well, let's pray before we begin this morning. Lord God, we're so thankful for you. Lord, I'm so thankful that today um, we approach a God not in fear. We approach you not saying, well, I need to make sure that I need to do this or that before I walk into God's house, his church. But you're a, gar a God who sees people that you love so much. And you willingly accept us wherever we find ourselves. And you approach us with so much grace, so much love. So, Lord, today, would we get to experience that on a whole other level? 
Lord, if there's questions that rise up within our spirit, Lord, I just pray that there would be an obedience for people not to just be stagnant, but to engage. Lord, that we, we want to know more about you. We want to take our faith seriously in a way where we can see a clearer picture of you. So, Lord, we're thankful today that you are a God of relationship, not religion. And, Lord, we're thankful that we have access to that relationship today, even as we sit here, as we open your word, Lord, and as we engage with you, Lord, we have opportunity. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. So, okay, so today we are talking about filters. This is part three of our series, uh, Relationship or Religion. And we're going to confront some chains of legalism uh, that involve some false filters, some things that maybe we have perspective of about the Bible, about who God is. And we're going to really talk about these things. But it, it's, it's interesting because it's like, how can we truly study this thing called the Bible, knowing the right history, the right context, without all of these filters interfering, right, with our interpretations? This is, it's impossible. It's impossible as a human not to do that because we have bias. We have assumption. We bring things to the table that it's impossible to, like, step outside of those things. But once again, we can be aware and we can try. So rather than trying to, like, do everything, what we're going to do is we're going to really confront a couple of uh, several false filters and how we can avoid it. We're going to examine the most common ones that, that I believe exist, and, and we're going to try to step outside of it. We're going to try to understand Scripture more clearly, and, and let me just give us kind of the goal of today as we, as we dive through a few assumptions. This is our goal, to work past common interpretive assumptions, what we're calling Bible filters, that hijack a clear picture of who God and his church are. So we're going to look at two filters, common Bible filters, that I would argue are false, and we're going to address two that are about God, and then we're going to address two that are about the church, uh, and, and how we can remove those filters and see God Clearly. So, as we, these first two are going to be about God, and, and first I want to say before we even dive into it, there's something I want us to grasp in terms of God's character and God's capacity. I believe there's a big difference, and I want us to grasp this as we wrestle, because we're going to be wrestling with a couple fil filters that are big ideas, but we have to understand the difference of God's capacity versus his character. God has a capacity to be something, to exist, and to have a specific capacity, right? But it's interesting as we work through these ideas, we're going to understand that there also is the reality of how God acts. What does his character look like? He is a massive God. He is divine. He is greater than all things. But what, what is his character? Those two things are different. Those two things don't have to necessarily be in competition with one another. But it's going to help us digest and understand who God is and some of these false filters as we approach the Bible and try to discover, okay, who is this God of the Bible and how do we approach the Bible today? Okay, so let's look at the first filter. Anybody ready? Come on. Are we still awake out there? Yeah! We got some back row people that aren't asleep. Come on now. All right, here we go. Filter number one. God is outside time. God is outside time. Anybody ever heard this before, this phrase before, this is kind of familiar? Okay. Okay, like three of us. Okay, well, let's talk about this because I've, I've heard this many times, and this can be a filter that can hinder the way that we view God. So many times this idea that God is outside time comes from different scriptures throughout the Bible, right? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 46. In verse 10 it says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So this is an idea that confronts that God is greater than time and basically he doesn't submit to time so he's outside of it. So he sees this whole thing of moments that exist simultaneously. Like 
stretch your brain for a second and try to grasp this, like, the largeness as we just kind of try to discover God with each other this morning. That time is a measurement of moments, but what many people say is, well, God is outside of it, right? He sees every moment. It's kind of all happening simultaneously because he's bigger and he's greater, right? What we're talking about this morning when we're talking about the possibility of God being outside of time is we're talking about this word that says God is omniscient, which means simply this, God is all-knowing, the omniscience of God. He sees the end from the beginning, every detail of our lives. But there's certain scriptures that kind of come and, and, and confront this idea and this label and this filter that God is outside time that we need to wrestle with. And we're going to look at this. And the first one we're going to look at is a story in the Bible out of talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities that, if I was to summarize, summarize it in modern terms, this is basically a gang-raping sex cult. It was horrible. This was a horrible situation in the early days of humanity. The things that were happening, and people were crying out. There was an outcry. People were praying out to God. There was an outcry based on the pain and the hurt and the sin that existed within these cities that it got God's attention. And in Genesis chapter 18, 20 through 21, it says this. It says, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. This is interesting. This is interesting when we apply the filter that God is outside time. Because it seems as if there's a circumstance within the scripture where God isn't knowledgeable about a specific situation. Now, here's what we can do. We can do what I believe many people do sometimes and say, well, we'll just ignore that verse. Well, I'm just going to brush that one under the rug. Thomas Jefferson, you know, he, he talked about the Bible one time. He said, when I find a verse that I don't like, I just scratch it out of my Bible. We can't do that. We can't, we can't do that. And this is the problem is that sometimes we confront some of these ideas that confront some of our assumptions of how we approach the Bible and we don't know how to wrestle with it. So we just want to kind of brush it under the rug. This, if we're believing this is the Bible, if we're believing this is the word of God given to us in the, the way that it appropriately throughout history carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit was given to us today, we can't brush some of these ideas underneath the rug. So we have to confront it and we have to have conversation about it. If God is truly outside of time, we have to ask, why would God, as we later find out in the story, come down? Why would he scope out something if he already knew it? Why would he have to investigate it? Shouldn't he already know? It doesn't fit with the idea or the generalization that God is outside of time. And the story goes on, and, and we have this character, Abraham, he begins to bargain with God. He's like, well, because God's like, I'm going to destroy this place. There's nothing good that's coming from this. This is horrible. This is a horrible situation where people have become animals. We don't know the specific details of everything, but we do know, once again, gang raping sex cult at a minimum. Not good. People are being hurt. There's horrible things running rampant. And God's like, I just need to get rid of this. And Abraham, this character in the Bible, he, he has conversation with God. And he says, but what if you destroy some people that are actually good? He said, what if there's 50 people there? Would, would you still destroy it? And he says, okay, there's 50 people. If we go and we figure this out, there's 50 people, then I won't destroy it. And he keeps bargaining with God, right? It's like, okay, 40, 30. He gets the number down to 10. And what we find out at the end of the story is there wasn't even 10 people, right? And the place gets absolutely obliterated, right? 
and the people that were righteous were, were, were allowed exit, right? They were given an opportunity to leave as we read and continue in this story, right? But it's interesting. So along the logic that God maybe already knew this, is, he upon, is Abraham upon in his bargaining with God? It's just like, well, Abraham, I know. And I'm just, you're just kind of a pawn right now. We're, we're having conversation, but it's just kind of like it doesn't make a difference because you're the pawn in this equation. And then it can kind of apply to us and how we relate to God's character, right? So God already knows, and we are just pawns in his plan. We're just kind of pawns in this thing called life. We're just meaninglessly walking through life knowing that, well, God's just kind of going to orient it, and it's going to go how it's supposed to go. A much less relational God is portrayed when we use this filter that God is outside time. Let's keep wrestling with it. There's an additional example that I think is helpful to understanding this. There's a time in the Bible where the God's people, the Israelites, were burning their infant children. Another situation where something horrendous was happening because of humanity, right? Because of our brokenness, because of the opportunity for us to not conquer our vices, but continue to go down the path of living within the curse of sin, right? So these infant children were being used as sacrifices to an idol named Molech, and God expresses his surprise. Jeremiah chapter 32, 35, let's see what it says. It says, they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded nor did it enter my mind, God speaking, that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. Once again, what are we going to do here? Are we going to try to reconcile this idea? Or are we going to just kind of scoot this one underneath the rug? I would argue we need to, we need to figure it out. We, we have many times an assumption that's conflicting with what the Scripture actually says that we begin to apply as a filter when it comes to how we approach the Bible. We can't brush this underneath the rug. We have to confront and figure out and discover who God is in the midst of it because it's going to change absolutely everything when we approach God's word and we discover his truth. So let's talk about this. Here we go. Filter number one, God is outside time. Capacity Versus character. Here's, here this, here's where this is going to become very, very helpful for us in our interpretation. God's capacity. He is greater than time. He is. We know that from the Bible. There's enough verses for us to understand this great principle that he is omniscient, right? He is greater than time. Time is not greater than him. He existed before anything. He is, right? But what is his character? Just because he has the capacity doesn't necessarily mean it's in conflict with his character. What is, his, what is his character as we've seen in the scriptures? He chooses to work within time. His capacity is greater. But he chooses to limit himself and work within time as a relational God, moment to moment basis. God chooses. Think about this for a second. God's character from Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end, is consistent with the pinnacle of the Bible named Jesus. Jesus, when he sent, when God sent his son Jesus, Jesus didn't send him outside of time. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to send you. And look at the totality of moments, the, this whole thing called time, every moment that could ever exist in the, the whole sphere of the universe and earth. I'm going to send you here. 
and just to look at it, right? No, we know that God, within human history, submitted under time, sent his son to live in a moment-by-moment basis to come for us as his people. God is greater. He has a greater capacity. But his character shows us he chooses to limit himself on a moment-by-moment basis so that we can have relationship with him. It is not meaningless, but it brings light to the character of the God of the Bible who is revealed and proves himself to be true time and time again. So let's finalize this first filter. God is outside time, this filter. To see the God of the Bible clearly, we must remove the false filter that assumes God is out of touch with our reality. Because when we say that God is outside time, that is what we're saying. We're assuming that God is distant, and we're assuming, we're making assumptions that we are pawns in the midst of this whole thing that he already knows about, and we just get to be pawns within it. This is challenging. This goes deep, but it's a filter that for whatever reason we apply every time we open this Bible, and it hinders us from seeing a truly clear picture of the God of the Bible. Amen? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Don't fall asleep on me. Here we go. Filter number two. God is in control. This is a phrase. That, okay, anybody heard this phrase before? Hey, there we go. Okay, this is a common phrase, right? Um, so let's talk about this because what we're talking about now is this idea of the omnipotence of God. That God is all-powerful, right? And it's the difference between what we talk about as God's sovereignty versus his absolute sovereignty. What do I mean by that? That there's a scope of that what God wants to happen will happen. This is his sovereignty. But there's a belief when we get very rigid, once again, we talked about rigidity last week, in this idea that God is absolutely sovereign. What do I mean by that? He's in control of every single thing. It's an extreme viewpoint that sometimes we apply when we say these types of phrases. Let's apply this to the world. When a tragedy happens, God is in control. And then we explain it away when horrible things happen on the earth and say, well, God's in control. Well, God works in mysterious ways. Everything happens for a reason. But if we're going to conclude from that logic, we would assume that tragedy then is God's judgment. Because it's his. It's his control. It's his doing. But there's a problem with this viewpoint. If God is in control of everything, then when evil happens, he is the one who is the source and is in control of that too. This gives us a very confusing picture of God. Why? Because that means he's behind blessing, provision, protection, healing. But that also means he's behind abortion, rape, murder, incest, genocide, War, every possible evil that could exist on the earth. Let's continue to break this down from a biblical perspective that some of you guys might be familiar with. If God is orchestrating evil according to his plans, when we are commanded to resist the devil, are we then in fact resisting God? So there's a better expression for, I believe, for what we mean when we say that God's in control. I don't think that's a horrible phrase. 
I think it's, there's a better expression to understand what we mean when we're saying that God is in control. And the, the phrase is simply that God is in charge. I think a beautiful metaphor is for us to understand that God is like a king sitting on his throne. King Jesus. Jesus is often referred to in royal terms throughout the scripture as our king, as our savior king, right? Jesus is like a king sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning, while many things, good or bad, happen in the land. He is all-powerful, but he has not caused everything which happens in the land. So can you imagine that for a second? A king within a society, he's ruling, he's reigning. He has the highest form of jurisdiction, but he's not controlling robotically every single event that happens in the land. There's good things that are going down. There's horrible things that are going down. And how this parallels to the world that we live in today opens up a perspective that's very relatable about the God of the universe. And what's interesting is this brings a shift within our perspective a little bit. Because horrible things happen in the land. Horrible things happen on our soil within our country all the time that do not represent the good things of God. But it shifts our perspective when we begin to really grasp and own this and understand that Jesus is ruling and reigning in power and authority, but he's not robotically controlling everything that happens in the land. It switches our perspective from one that says, God, why are you doing this to, God, why are we allowing this to happen? As, as ambassadors, as people on behalf of you, your goodness, your rule, your reign, as you reign as king, let's talk about maybe from a personal level. Why have we been people that haven't stood up to the injustices when we know, God, what you stand for, what you equip us with, with your power, your provision, your resurrection? Or sometimes, and it's good for us to ask those questions as people living on this earth, are we really actually doing the things that Jesus has called us to do? Why have we allowed to make this happen? And it's good for us to even from a collective perspective, because sometimes I get it, we, we do our best in this lifetime and horrible things still happen, but we can collectively ask ourselves as human beings, why did we let this happen? Why did we allow the curse of sin to enter into this world? Because it's completely contrary to God and his character. God is not a God who orchestrates evil. That makes no logical sense if God is truly and wholly good. This begins to impact us and how we view God and how he relates to the world, but it also impacts the way that we have a personal perspective on God when we seek God's will for our life, right? Sometimes we perceive the will of God as, okay, if it's this play by play, it's, it's really rigid, God, you've kind of orchestrated everything, it's like, okay, I need to constantly seek you, God, okay, God, what's the next step, okay, God, what's the next step, God, okay, tell me what to do next, okay, I don't know what to do in my life, so I need to check in with you to make sure I'm doing the right thing, check, check in, check in, check in, that's God's will, what am I online with God's will, God's will, God's will, God's will, it begins to impact us into a rigid play by play according to God, rather than a living and being with God type of mentality that we see expresses God's will throughout the scripture. Let's talk about God's will for a second from this perspective and this filter, right? First, First Thessalonians chapter 5 says this, talking about God's will. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
When you're rejoicing, when you're praying, when you're giving thanks in all circumstances, guess what you're doing? Fulfilling God's will for your life. 1 Peter 2.15. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So guess what? When we silence ignorant talk of foolish people, we are fulfilling God's will. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So it's interesting, this relationship where God is working within you to fulfill his will. And finally, Romans 12, 2, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, describing what worship, how we, how we worship God. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You'll be able to discern and see. It's interesting. When the Bible talks about God's will, it's not a specific rigid pathway that you need to be on communication with God with. It's actually something that comes naturally in community and relationship with the God who chooses to walk with you within the scope of time in relationship. God's will isn't something that we need to be like, okay, God, show me your will. Okay, God, show me your will. The Bible makes it very clear. Walk with God, and he will reveal, and the good fruit that pours out from your life will show and be a blessing as God's will for you personally and collectively for his church. God's will is described in general relational terms throughout the scriptures. Okay, so as we're on this idea, let's talk about another extreme. God will do what he wants whenever he wants, right? So another phrase kind of applied to this idea, the scope of God's omnipotence, his power. But once again, there's a, there's a problem with that extreme. There's no human involvement. Let's think about this. If God truly does what he wants whenever he wants, why would we pray? If we're just robots with no say, what's the point? What's the point? And if we truly believe us, believe this idea, it prevents us from doing the things in the world that Jesus commanded us to do. Why would we do it? Why would we do what Jesus told us to do when he said to preach the gospel, to pray for the sick, to cast out demons, to allow the goodness of God to flow into this world as a solution on behalf of him? He does not want us, want to control us. We are not robotic worker bees, but to work through us as we stand up into our identity, authority, and dignity as representatives of the king. He is the king, and he has called us to be his ambassadors as described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's good and there's bad that's happening in the scope of the world today, but we have the opportunity as his church to stand up and be the ambassadors. Why are we allowing this to happen? We need to shift the perspective because a lot of people begin to blame God and apply things to his character when really we should be turning the finger around saying, why as his ambassadors have we let this happen in our world, on our soil, God's world, a place that he loves and desires so much. So let's talk about this, capacity versus character as we summarize. The second filter, that God is in control. We've defined that a little bit and made it a little bit more helpful in terms of making sure we don't just generalize that phrase. Because we understand God's capacity. 
He can do what he wants whenever he wants. He's omnipotent. He has that capacity. But what is his character? His character represents this. He gives us the free will to choose in the midst of his ultimate authority. God's going to get done what he needs to get done. He's going he's to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. But we aren't robots. We aren't his worker bees. We're actually be called to be people that live in relationship and connection with him to be his ambassadors. He is ruling and reigning. But that does not mean that horrible things that are not representative of him are happening in this world. But he's given us the gift of free will where we can show people a new way. Not robotic, but relational. Finally, to see the God of the Bible clearly, we must remove the false filter that God is a control freak. Because that's how it really breaks down. We begin to see God in light that says, well, yeah, he's just a control freak. What, what part do I have to really play in this whole thing since he is absolutely in control of every little detail and chooses to be? But the Bible paints a completely different picture, a different filter as we approach his word and understand who he is more clearly. Are we good? Okay, we're going to keep moving on. So we talked about a couple filters about God. Now we're going to talk about a couple filters about the church. So here's, here's, our, here's our next kind of thing that we need to kind of play with a little bit in terms of how we're going to approach the next two is, is, is this viewpoint right here. The church's obstacle versus the church's opportunity. I truly believe this. The, the modern church of today, we can view things that are happening in our day and age, in this history, and we can view it as an absolute obstacle. We can complain about it. We can put on Facebook things that we feel about it. We can just really be negative Nancys that really put off a tone that becomes contrary to the way that God sees the world. Or we could be people, as his ambassadors, that see in our current day and age that there's opportunity. There's a difference in our perspective between the obstacle and the opportunity. And this is going to help us with these next two filters as we conclude. So filter number three, let's look at this. Filter number three, the church is declining because of the end times. The church is declining because of the end times, right? Okay, let's talk about this for a second. Uh... Daniel chapter 2, we're going to look at, at some scripture that, was, that is prophetic. Hundreds of years before, the prophet Daniel speaks some things about the future that I would argue, and many biblical scholars would argue, have come to pass and have come true. And he speaks about different nations, different kingdoms. He speaks about the future kingdom of Babylon that we know wreaks havoc throughout the biblical narrative as we continue to read on. Medo-Persia, Greece. Rome, some of these big empires we read about throughout the time of the Bible, these big dogs. So Daniel chapter 2, 34 through 35, and then let's skip down to verse 45. This is interesting. We're going we're gonna to read about this because this is before the church even existed. This is before the church, the early church existed. And, and the prophet Daniel says, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smash them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, once again, they were representative of different nations. The gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human rank hands, a rock that broke, 
the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. So we have all these rivaling kingdoms, and here's what we realize when we read in the Bible when Jesus steps on the scene. He proclaims a new kingdom. He proclaims a gospel of a new kingdom. He proclaims good news about a new rule and reign. He proclaims this rule and reign, and we understand, understanding and seeing this interpretation, when Jesus begins the church, he says, hey, somebody confesses that Jesus is Lord, and he says, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. Peter, he says, I, I believe you're Lord. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. He says, okay, that confession right there, that declaration of who God is, that's, that's how the church is going to be built. He says upon, it's interesting, he uses that word rock, which is a parallel there together with the church. But this whole idea that there is a kingdom to come that is ruling and reigning and is going to take precedence. It is going to grow. It is going to become this massive movement on the earth. And then Jesus steps on the scene. I was reading in the ESV study Bible in the notes. It said, in contrast, God's kingdom grows from humble beginnings to ultimate united glory as a single kingdom that fills the whole earth forever. Once again, his rule, his reign. This metaphor of royalty. God is sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. His rule and reign is present. And then let's go to the, fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus says in Luke 13, then Jesus asks, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? This is how he describes the kingdom of God, through a couple metaphors. Here's what his rule and reign is like. Like a mustard seed. Which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree. And the birds perched in its branches. The reason why that detail is given to us is because there's so many different branches that birds can perch on. That means the tree is absolutely massive. So first he compares it to, okay, what's the kingdom of God like? Well, this is, it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it builds into power. Verse 20. Again he asks, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Yeast that begins to spread and spread and spread. Greater and greater and greater. More powerful, more powerful. But many times we have some conflicting ideas. Let's look at one of those. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And for whatever reason, this filter is the one that we can have an extreme about and obsess over. And we say, well, this verse says that there's going to be all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. So what is the lie? What is the sign wonder? What is it? I want to I figure out. I want to figure out who the man of lawlessness is. Here's what I'll say. Throughout history, after this verse was written, there was many numerous men of lawlessness that existed that meet this description. Look up about Nero. See the types of things that Nero did. He was definitely a man of lawlessness. I look at Hitler in our history and I say, definitely a man of lawlessness that kind of fits the bill, right? So once again, we don't, we don't necessarily know in the future of what future possibilities of men of lawlessness look like. But if we just base everything upon this scripture, it removes our perspective about the power of the ruling and reigning of God's kingdom and how it was prophetically spoken about on the earth that we live in today. And it can discourage us to get to a place that I would call is very doom and gloom about the world that we live in. We look at the world, we look for signs and wonders, and we're wondering how it's going to go to hell in a handbasket. 
because we're so obsessed with trying to figure this out. We've gone to an extreme, and we begin to erase the other perspectives of the Bible that say God's rule and reign, the kingdom that Jesus preached, the first sermon he preached when he stepped onto the scene, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your reach. That kingdom has been prophetically spoken and affirmed throughout the scriptures to be one that continues to expand in power and in glory throughout the world. When the only signs you look for are lying signs and wonders that point to the end of the world, this mindset can lead us to a place where we get suspicious about everything. When God heals somebody, when something miraculous happens, you begin to filter it through a, well, who's to say that that's not the display of power through the sign and wonder of the Antichrist? And we can never celebrate the authenticity of God's rule and reign coming forth and continuing to expand on the earth that we, little, that we live on and we live within human history. So let's continue. Filter number three. The church is declining because of the end times. Well, let's think about this. We, I believe we can have a perspective and a filter in how we approach the Bible. We can look at this as an obstacle or we can look at it as an opportunity. That if, if in fact, the world is getting worse, there's an opportunity for people to meet Jesus. There's an opportunity for the kingdom of God, his rule and reign to rise up in his vehicle as the church to release ambassadors to do the things that Jesus called us to do. Do not settle for doom and gloom. Don't settle. And as we continue, just believe this. To see the church clearly, we must remove the false filter of decline towards the church's mission. The church is not going to decline. There might be some obstacles. There might be some suffering. There might be some things that come along the way. But there's a kingdom. There's a rule and reign. There's a sovereignty of God that will overcome. We're going to face suffering. It's not going to be a perfect ride. But God's rule and reign is one that continues to expand. And we get to partner and be a part of it. Amen? All right. Last filter this. The church is becoming more divided. People say, oh, well, the modern church, I mean, it's just, we got all these denominations, we got, we got so many people that disagree on this and that, we got so many people that interpret the Bible differently. You know, this was me, like, 10 years ago. Just a really cynical young person about the modern church, right? About church today. About, are we actually being the church that Jesus has called us to be? And this filter, as we look, we can get really discouraged. And we can begin to filter as we read this thing and say, well, the church is becoming more and more divided. And we can have some stinking thinking in terms of how we approach God's word and his plans through his church for the world that we live in. Let's look at what Ephesians says to give us an understanding of how maybe this filter can be combated. We're going to look at verses 4, or chapter 4, 2 through 3. And we're going to skip down to 11 through 13. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I love this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Unity of the what? Spirit. Through the bond of peace. Meaning this. You and I, we don't muster up unity. We choose to jump in with the spirit's unity. 
The Spirit of God provides all the unity that we need. He is the glue that allows the church to be together. He is the one who provides the perfect unity that we desire when we see disunity. But it's up to us of whether we're actually making every effort to keep that unity that he's providing. And then in a few verses later, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Notice that just the pastors wasn't listed there. But there's a plethora of gifts that rise up within the church to accomplish God's mission. To equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Unity is something that God desires. Unity is constantly something that we are trying to reach and to attain to. But we have to understand this in the midst of our modern stinking thinking of how we think about the church. And we're like, it's so disorganized. It's so spread out. It's so, there's so many schisms here, left and right. We need to understand this. Conformity or unity does not mean conformity. Unity, as defined by the Bible, is something that we choose to join in with the Spirit of God with. It does not mean that everyone agrees on every possible biblical interpretation. But it means that we jump in. We advocate for the bond of peace. We advocate when it comes to other Christians who maybe think about things a little bit differently than we do. That does not necessarily mean we are divided and we need to conform to the specific perfect way that other people think. It simply means we need to get on the same page. I love what Amos 3.3 says, and it talks about, it's just a simple verse. It won't be up on the screen. It says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Unity of the faith means choosing to walk together because of love and honor. Not because we agree on every possible detail. We got to choose love and honor. We got to jump in with that love and honor that the Spirit of God already provides. So let's, 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 let's conclude here. Filter number four. The church is becoming more divided. We can view it as an obstacle or an opportunity. You can view it as the obstacle, saying, well, it's just not pure. We're living in a day and age, a part of history, which is so divided. How is this, how are we going to get everybody back together? Or we can view it, view it as an opportunity. We can understand there's beauty in the differences. And as we hold Jesus as the main thing, there's beautiful expressions as the mission of God is being accomplished. Don't settle for division because division is your responsibility. It's your responsibility whether you join in with the Spirit of God and His unity or not. The onus is on you. The problem is not with God. The problem is with us and our decision to be people that advocate for the unity that God desires and describes for his church. Amen? Let's, let's finalize here. I truly believe this. This fourth filter. To see the church clearly, we must remove the false filter of cynicism towards the modern church. We got to let it go. There's too much opportunity in terms of how God can break in in our day, in our age, in 2018, for us to be cynical, for us to be complainers, for us to only set our eyes on the obstacles and not actually in relationship with the God who sees us, who chooses to walk through time with us, who chooses to allow his power to be displayed through us, who allows us to partner. There's too much at stake for us to be people that waste our time and energy about being cynical, about 
ideals that really aren't even God's true desire for what he sees in the world that we live in. We cannot settle for division. Filters can work together in a way that really limits our ability to understand the Bible. It can really limit our ability to truly become the ambassadors of the king. As he's ruling and reigning on this earth currently, as he's seated on the throne, as he has the scope of understanding there's great things that are happening, but there's also bad. And the way that we view and approach this thing, the way we filter it sometimes, can really have a drastic approach on us really understanding that God's calling us to partner with him and be a difference maker in every aspect of our life. It can paralyze us from effectively living out what the Bible says. That's why we got to get rid of these faulty filters before we even examine the Bible in its proper context. We've got to step outside of some of the assumptions that maybe some of us who have grown up in church, maybe some of us who have placed on God's character, we need to, we need to shove those things off to the side before we could just even approach God's word because we don't even realize the way that it's affecting the way that we see and interpret who God is. Removing these lenses will, will help us read with a fresh understanding. Up on the screen, we have that definition of legalism. Confronting the chains of legalism, strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. There's a clarity that comes in understanding who God is when we remove these faulty filters. But once again, Jesus wants relationship, not religion. Let's summarize the things that we talked about this morning in what I would call as average Joe biblical filters. Each and every one of us, we're not called to be biblical scholars, but we do carry a responsibility to understand God through his word. Once again, man, eighth grader, Common education today in our country knows more than the scholars did of years upon years ago. So as we approach this thing, what are some helpful ways that we can approach it with now that we've identified some false filters? Number one, God is with you, walking through time, choosing on a moment-by-moment -moment basis to walk with you in relationship. Andrea alluded to this during worship. That's why his title is Emmanuel. He's described as a God who is with us, not a God that steps out and says, look at all my pawns but a God who's chosen to limit himself to the scope of time to walk within reality with us and have relationship with us. God is in charge. He is the Savior King. He's not just the Savior, but he's the King who is ruling and reigning. And he is in charge. And as his rule and reign carries out and continues to expand, good things are happening within that scope of his ruling and reigning. But we also understand there's a reality of evil. But that evil does not come from him. That is an evil that is completely contrary to the goodness of God and his character and who he is. God, third, God is using his church. He's using his church through the gospel of the kingdom. A good news that Jesus talks about, about a kingdom and a power and a provision that continues to expand today. That continues to impact people thousands of years later in 2018 in the way it did when people gathered together and were impacted by what Jesus did at this moment of history that seems somewhat ancient to us today. And lastly, God is allowing us to be a part of the redemption and reconciliation plan for the world, the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Go 
he says. We get to be a part of that plan. And here's, here's what I believe our next step is. Our next step is that we would pray that God will make this clear to us. You maybe have carried some filters in the way that you see God, or maybe that you've applied if you've, as you've read the Bible and you didn't even realize you were applying. My prayer is that this week, in this moment, in these upcoming days, that you would allow yourself to say, okay, God, show me that you're this God. Maybe I didn't view you through this lens and understanding that you are so relational, that you choose to walk with us. I didn't understand that maybe, that God, that I've applied the fact that I've blamed you for some horrible things. I've blamed you for the recent hurricane. I've blamed you for some things that have happened that really aren't representative of his goodness and his character and his scope and how he sees the world. Maybe you're a person that just have had some stinking thinking about the effectiveness of the church today. What's the point? Is this something that I just attend or go to? Or are we truly the church as his community, as his ambassadors? And lastly, maybe you're a person that you've just had a hard time connecting the dots of understanding that God chooses to use you. You get to be a part of it. You, he allows us to be a vehicle in the midst of his plan for the world that we live in. He allows us to get to be a part of his work and his scope of how he sees and what he believes and what he's going to allow to come to pass, ultimately, according to his sovereignty and his glory. We need to pray. If we are disconnected with any of those ideas, we need to pray, get with God, and say, God, would you bring clarity to these situations that maybe I carried contrary assumptions to? Because here's my conviction. I just want to know God and see him so clearly. I want to approach his word and understand that there is a clear picture of who he is and me being connected to the idea of what he wants from my life. What is my purpose? One of the greatest questions that we can ask ourselves. But when we see God clearly, the clarity on what we're supposed to do and how we relate to the God of the universe becomes clear as well. Amen.